0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode three hundred and ninety. And this week I'm joined by the amazing Juliet Stevenson. Um you'll hear from really early on in this that I'm a big fan of Juliet Stevenson and I was incredibly excited to get to work with her at the end of twenty nineteen, I think, maybe beginning of twenty twenty. On a show called Out of Her Mind. And I was excited, like Jess I said, I saw I had a scene that that she was in. I'm a big fan we talk about it all, but her career has just been stunning. Her performances have always amazed me and inspired me and i've I've studied numerous performances of juliet's to to learn <laughs> to learn what I'm doing, but as much as anything her her choices along the way have always just been it's great that we got to talk about it because... Yeah, her reasons for what she chooses rather than at one point in the conversation, someone early in her career had a big plan for her and she didn't l- like the idea of that. It shows in her career. It's so unique and bespoke and intentional. I love it. But, but yeah, I was hugely excited to work with Juliet and I, I very much, you you guys know me. I'm an enthusiastic guy and I'm not ashamed to be enthusiastic and to fanboy so I very much let her know on set how dope it was to to be working with her and then we we lined up this podcast uh, a year a a year and a bit on and it's fantastic you're going to really enjoy it but before we get into it big love to everyone for the love for last week's episode with Laura Dockrell man it was an emotional one there were tears and she was so powerful in the way she spoke about stuff that's really hard to speak about, it's parenthood stuff, it's motherhood stuff, it's mental health stuff. And it's, yeah, it's a hell of an episode. And speaking of mental health, I should continue to mention because I'm so proud of it. All throughout the month of May, I did a series of mental health specials called Where's Your Head At, where I spoke from everyone from F- Florence Pugh to Jamali Maddox, Fern Cotton to Simon Pegg, Lena Heady to Stephen Graham. Connie Huck to Dame Baptiste. But also I spoke to my mum and I spoke to my dad and I spoke to my 10-year-old goddaughter. And it was to talk to all of them about their mental health whilst existing through a pandemic. So, yeah, really interesting chats. Um, If you want to support the podcast or get any of my merch, head to speechdevelopmentrecords.com. Loads of good merch over there. Um, We've got the limited edition gold sunglasses back in. i've got a load of merch that that has if if you're not familiar i've got a load of merch that has our logo slogan on which is we may not be for you and that's fine and i released these black sunglasses with white print a while back and they went crazy and then a year or two ago i decided to release a limited run of gold print so it's black but gold writing and now each year or every other year every now and then i release a drop And they're limited. I'm not going to restock them until next year or the year after. And they always go crazy. So hopefully by the time you hear this, they have not sold out. But there's loads of good stuff over there. You can get my Edinburgh Fringe DVD or digital download. You can get vinyl records, T-shirts. I mean, it's England, so you can get sunglasses or umbrellas. You can get swimsuits or woolly hats and scarves. You can get jumpers or vests, you can get hoodies or t-shirts. Genuinely all things that we stock over at speechdevelopmentrecords.com. Um, and you can also support the podcast by going over to patreon.com slash Pip. It's like a $1 dollar or a dollar fifty a month to just go, you know what, I listen to this every week and I think I get a dollar's worth of entertainment over the month. So here you go. Have a, a dollar. You 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 can of course choose to pay more. So so if you think I enjoy this podcast enough that if, say, the second Sunday of every month, I bumped into Pip, I'd buy him a pint, then you can, you know, chip in the amount of a pint every month to patreon.com slash Pip. Anyway, all of that nonsense aside, this is episode 390 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with the wonderful Juliet Stevenson. started and I have started to there we go it's a nice announcement wasn't it
1: it was you said we were alone you were lying you <laughs> yeah, were
0: lying I didn't know right I'll get straight <laughs> into it um I'm here today with Juliet Stevenson how are you I'm well thank you Pip it's lovely to see you yeah it's lovely to see you too we I was I was I, I expressed it at the time but I was very excited to work with you on on out of her mind and we had a wonderful evening shooting a scene together, obviously with Sarah and with Sean Gilder. How was that as a show to work on? Because you obviously had a lot more.
1: Uh, I had, I just, I mean, didn't we have the best time? Yeah. We just had the best time. I was really, really nervous, I can now say. I was so scared of this job, you know. I've been working all these years, decades, and I was really, it was like being back at square one, you know. I think because I thought, God, you know, I haven't really worked with, um, I mean, like... Sarah's so funny. I've been a big fan of hers, which yeah. is always kind of, it's wonderful to be asked to work with somebody you really admire, but it also can be a little bit intimidating. And But she was completely lovely, of course, yeah. all the time. And and I wasn't sure that I would find the right style of comedy to work with her and Fiona and, and you and everybody. It was quite, you know, and then there was Ade, Edmondson. And, I mean, lots yes. of people I really love and admire. And I thought, how are we all going to find the same language? But actually, I think... Sarah's style for the whole show was so, so personal and so particular and so her own. And it sort of the joy of it and the inventiveness of it sort of spread through everybody, didn't it? And because she was sort of yeah, completely. in all departments, she'd written it, producing it, in it, you know, sort of doing her own costume, helping, you know. Yeah. So I think it, it was all of a piece. And so once we started shooting, actually, all my nerves sort of fell away and I just had a really, really lovely time. It was just such a ball. And not often, you can't often say that about a job, but how no, did you feel about it's it? It's true.
0: Yeah, I I loved it. And I think you've nailed it there. It's the thing that was kind of surprising and weirdly it feels as if it should have been overwhelming was how over everything Sarah was. She really knew everything that she wanted yeah. in every way. But she expressed it all in such a calm, as if we're all just messing about and having a laugh, right, rather I than know. it being this huge production. It's a BBC thing, time restrictions, all of this.
1: Exactly. I mean, with people breathing down her neck behind the scenes, presumably, and, and then she still had time in a you know in a six minute tea break to order everybody you know donuts or pizzas yeah. or Christmas yeah. presents or I mean, she's just amazing. And I also was perhaps most of all was really excited because I genuinely think that that series was breaking new ground.
0: I agree. Don't you I agree as soon as I got the scripts through I was like I've I've never particularly as you get to the last episode where it's really just mind m- mind blowing where she goes with it and the direction of it all it was an amazing one to yeah to play yeah, with and I, be I, part Yeah
1: completely of. you know I mean really sort of surreal but but taking an idea which you know to, to play herself and then to be talking to camera but then we 're sort of we are her family and and her friends, but we 're sort of in but completely invented but it 's it 's sort of this strange wonderful mix between her and fantasy and fiction and real life, and then the use of sort of incredible graphics, and so then the whole concept sort of going into spiraling into some sort of meltdown once once the mechanism of how we're making this series is part of the story. So yeah. shots of the empty studio and wandering through sets and coming out into empty and cameras dangling, and, you know, that, that whole sort of... So, so that part of the story was the making of the story and all yeah. the possible choices in any, any direction that it could go in. I thought that was just completely unique and funny and meaningful. I mean, I, I thought it was quite... It was very moving as well as very funny. Yeah. I thought it was brilliant.
0: I completely agree, and the way she kind of addressed the cons- conceits of, of a TV show of, of fiction, the way she'd bring you characters into the reveal of the of the of, of the looking down the camera, but you'd still be the characters, and then at other points you'd be yourselves and things like that. It was just this whole weird woven t- tapestry of. Uh, of Of yeah of revealing it all and and peeling everything back, I guess
1: peeling everything back exactly, and I think one thing I'm so excited about with with your generation, her generation, I went to Edinburgh Fringe Festival a couple of years ago because my kids had shows there, and I was doing a comedy gig for Amnesty actually so I was up there for about a week seeing lots of shows, and I was intoxicated with excitement because so much of what I saw young people making, I couldn't put a name to it, like right? so yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't... Is it a play? Is it performance art? Is it poetry? Is it art? I don't know. Is it dance? Is it showmanship? Is it circus? I don't know. It's everything and all of those things and something else. So I I love the sense of watching things happen on stages all over Edinburgh that I couldn't put a label to. And I felt a bit the same about Sarah's show. I thought, I don't know what this is. It's just uniquely hers, but it doesn't fit any category. And I think there's nothing more exciting than being in that place, um, which you very rarely are. Normally you know exactly sort of what form you're in, you know, is it yeah. TV thriller? Is it? But with hers, it was like new ground. And although that was quite unnerving in a way, but in entirely in a good way, you know.
0: Yeah. So, so how was it to go from, because we talked about it a, a little bit on, on set. One of the gigs that you'd been doing prior to this um, was The Doctor, which yeah. was getting amazing reviews. I was gutted I'd, I'd missed it, but I, I wanted to pick your brain about it at the time, and it sounded like an amazing thing to work on. But you're go- you're going from a serious and quite intricate play to a crazy out there c- comedy show. So how were yeah. how was the doctor to work on and again to get those reactions because it's a risky one. When whenever it's it's very popular in theatre to do new adaptations or modernisations of, of old text and things like that, and it can be so hit and miss. It can it can feel like it's amazing, or I'd imagine it can feel like it's amazing in, in rehearsals, and then when there's an audience there, it can go, oh, right, no, this, the things that we thought were risks were risks, but not in the way that we'd hoped. But this was one that seemed to, to really pay off, and it was based on Arthur um, Schnitzler's, yeah. Professor Bernardi right and um, yeah yeah. so how was that to work on
1: well the thing is it was written it was adapted from the original classic because you say it was a, um, by Rob Icke Robert Icke yeah. who I've worked with a lot we did um, Hamlet with Andrew Scott yes and, and even Rob even he even sort of reworked bits of Hamlet. Not much, but he did move scenes around. He moved to be and not to be to a different place in the play. I mean, he's amazing.
0: That's a big move. A,
1: <laughs> it's a big, it's a, it's a big move. But you know, yeah. the thing about Rob i mean, I've seen hundreds of shows where people attempt to modernize a classic, and you know, and they're coming in on you know with iPhones and iPads and you know and motorbikes or whatever. I mean, that's fine, but it's not at all the territory that Rob Icke's inhabiting. When he is modernizing a text, he he goes to the original text, and what he's doing is drawing out the the parts of it that really speak to us now and sort of filtering out all the stuff that seems irrelevant now always just overwritten I mean lots of those plays are very overwritten because you know we think very fast now we we cut we cut through the information very quickly Um, in fact we probably need to be encouraged to sit back and reflect a bit more because we're very like instant instant culture but but nevertheless those plays are a bit overwritten so he tends to and and why I love working with him one of many reasons is that's always been my interest in if I do classical work which is only occasionally it's only interesting to me if it speaks to now I have no interest in it as a museum piece or archival I really don't care how Shakespeare did Shakespeare plays I don't want to go and you know I'm not interested I only think theatre is about now and speaks to now and tells stories for us now and what we need to hear and share and look at together and the Doctor, to go to that particular play. And, and, and Robert done the same thing on Mary Stuart by Schiller. So he'd made that, a modern, always modern dress and always about, you know, these two powerful women, um, Mary Stuart and Elizabeth I. But on, going back to The Doctor, the story in the original is about a doctor working in a, in a private hospital, as it would have been then because it was pre-NHS. And um, she has a young patient who's dying of a botched abortion, mm. a young girl, like 15 years old. And the girl is a Catholic by birth. Her parents aren't around, they're abroad or are away so the doctor sadly cannot save this young girl's life and the priest arrives to give her the last rites and the doctor says i don't want you coming in because as soon as she sees a priest she'll know she's dying and i want to if i can't save her life at least i want to keep her calm and and at ease i don't want her to know she's dying because she'll freak out and it'll her life will end in this terrible torturous chaotic terror so if you go into the room, she'll know she's dying. So I'm, I'm asking you not to go into the room. And he says, "But I insist." You know. Anyway, long long and short of it is, the doctor, my character, succeeds in keeping him away. But he is very, very angry. And so Rob took that subject, that little sort of narrative. And he put it into a contemporary setting. And so when I turn the doctor away, he goes out and somebody overhears it. A member of staff overhears this exchange in the hospital corridor and it goes viral. It goes onto the Internet. It goes into social media. And so all sorts. Now, the doctor is Jewish. It turns out the priest is black. Uh, There's lots and lots of additional material that starts to come in later, which you don't know at the time. So you judge the event. Was she right or was she wrong? And then later, when you discover more about each person's identity, you then start to think, oh, how did that influence my decision? If I'd known the priest was black, would I have been more sympathetic to the priest? Or if I'd known she was Jewish, if I'd known she, you know, so so the the whole, and then it unravels and it unravels. And of course, it's a story of how her, she's completely destroyed in the end by this incident being blown up on social media and... Uh, and the whole world chips in and has a view, even though very few people know exactly what happened or why. Yeah. Or why it happened, crucially. And I think it's the most, um, it's an incredible play. And it's a real look at, you know, what we're we doing at the moment. We're, we're so quick to smash people and smash, prof- you know, careers and reputations and... And come to quick judgments of people without knowing anything, and certainly without knowing all that we should know before making a decision. So much is judged on very little, and, and we seem quite happy to be unkind, quite happy to be yeah. destructive towards people we don't know. And, and so much tolerance seems to be eroded, be, whittling away our tolerance, our understanding, our, our desire to understand. Not what happens, but why is this happening? Yeah. Why is this young girl, why is this young lad in, killed another young lad at age 15? Why is the You know, the, the question why is, I suppose, why I do what I do is to examine why human beings are the way we are. And if we stop asking those questions as a society, and I think this cancelling culture although sometimes it's very, very important to show people up and to say this terrible thing has happened and, you know, these people must be accountable and especially if it gives people a voice who haven't been able to speak out. So I realise it's a, you know, there are lots and lots of pluses in having a, a culture where people can finally put a voice to abuses or to inequalities or discrimination that is very very important and I entirely support it but I do think that cancellation culture has gone crazy and it's um and it's really a story the doctor is a story of that of how this extraordinary amazing doctor who's not perfect I mean she has her faults and she has her stubbornnesses and her I'm sure she has her prejudices but it's not what it seems um so it's an amazing play and it was an amazing play to 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 put on in 2019 and of course it should have gone on all last year as well but it is yeah. coming back
0: oh that was it because we were talking at the time of it continuing and I was excited I was like we'll definitely come along and then obviously everything happened that has, has happened so we'll get into that but I think mm. it's a fascinating that we're at a time where we can add some f- f- fascinating r- r- restrictions or elements w- when modernizing things because of social media because of where we are and I think you're completely right the thing that I find interesting is we've got to this point where information is so readily available that we don't question it or do the research or do the, the background anymore previously if we wanted to find something out we'd read a big book and at the end we, we would have found out the fact whereas yeah. now we're getting the fact and we're not getting the journey to the fact Absolutely. so it's so easy to go well I've heard that this this doctor did that therefore it's like but that's all you've got and you're going yeah, off. And again, okay. I think it's uh, to give humans a slight get out. I think it's really easy to do. It's addictive. You hear something inflammatory and you go, well, that's an injustice. Yeah. I need to speak out. I've now got this, this voice that I can type out. I yeah. need to speak out on this rather than going, man, that feels awful. I need to know more. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> needing to totally. know more rather than needing to share my opinion on it should be the new priority I guess
1: I I, t- I totally agree and I also agree with with you saying you know this is not an appeal for me for people to be less sort of concerned yeah. with, with with justice and injustice oh my god I mean the opposite because as you know I mean you and I have both been quite involved in the, a lot in the in the refugee thing and yeah. I am I'm absolutely um, in favor of people standing up and talking about injustice or inequality or, dis- or discrimination completely and in fact one of the things I love about the generation below mine is my kids' generation in their sort of 20s is that they're so wonderfully, so many people in that generation, so active, so, so brave, standing up, naming things, rolling up their sleeves and getting on and doing something about it. I love that about that generation. I feel very at home, very at ease with them because I yeah. think that's the way I've always liked to be and it hasn't always been easy in my generation. So I agree totally. That is very distinct from what you've just actually put very well, which is that business of just making a very quick, easy judgment about an individual without looking at the forces that work on that individual sometimes. It isn't that you – I think you can can condemn an act, but don't necessarily condemn the person who has created that act, who's done that act, until you've understood more about her or him. I mean, don't condemn them. You can, of course, say that this needs looking at – you know we need to we need to examine what's happened here but you don't need to destroy them i think that's what's upsetting
0: sometimes or the, or it's you know? it's the lack of nuance in in social media is that is the belief that every indiscretion the consequence should be absolute destruction and i yeah. think there there is nuance mm. um i think mm. we suffer a lot when we miss it because we put you know someone who said something inappropriate in the same place as a harvey a weinstein for example and that's two Absolutely. different things. They're both wrong, Absolutely. but there's two very different things and we soften the worse of the two when we put them all in in one in, in one bucket, I guess. Yeah.
1: Totally agree. And it's it's I not totally agree. Do, you, do yeah. you
0: ever find it kind of overwhelming or depressing when texts can be modernized so easily? And the doctors a prime example of this as we see what's going on with abortion law in America at the moment with so many states pulling it back to you can't have an abortion after six weeks, which is so early for most people wouldn't know that they've Wouldn't had, even know they were pregnant. And, and, the, 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 ..that they were pregnant. And mm. obviously it was only in the last few years the abortion laws changed in Ireland. So it must be strange at times looking at classics and old text and going... Because you kind of assume that the world has come further than it has often. I, I certainly <laughs> do. It's often I'll read stuff. An easy example is 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 when I've had guests on who are in their 60s or or 70s and there was a point where their sexuality was illegal and that blows my mind that this isn't this isn't lifetimes ago this is someone i'm talking to in a room with and there was a point when they realized their sexuality and not only was it frowned upon or or it might be a bit awkward it was literally illegal so these things are so weird to to think how slow we are moving i guess
1: It's a brilliant point. If you're asking me whether looking at classic plays and thinking, oh my God, we're still fighting for the same things. And this play was written, you know, 400 years ago. What is the point? And it's a really brilliant question. Does that depress me? I think it, it can do. Yeah. Sometimes it does when I think, I do ask myself a lot, what's the point of what I'm doing with my life? What is the point of being an actor? Am I actually doing anything useful? I'm very haunted by that, you know, I'm very, I'm very haunted by it. I've only got one life. Am I doing something useful? with it, can I honestly look at myself in the mirror and say you are contributing to to the greater good? Because that matters to me. I I hope it doesn't sound so... It really, really matters to me. And I think I've got to know that I am. And I do believe that we desperately need storytellers and we desperately need to tell our stories in order to look at how we are, look at human nature, look at the human condition, laugh at it, weep about it, have compassion for it. But primarily to understand why we do what we do. Asking the question why is the key to all compassion, tolerance and understanding, you know, Um, look at Macbeth. Why does Macbeth, Lady Macbeth hack their way through all these, you know, kill their way to the top? Well, why do we do that play? Because we need to understand what's driving them. We don't like what's driving them, but we need to understand it. So you look at the world today and you think, well, yeah, all that stuff is still going on. We're still asking the same questions. We're still fighting for the same change. But I now think, well, look, you know, at 18, I wanted to become an actor to make the world a better place, a very grand aspirations, you know, to change the world for the better. Now I just think that's never going to happen, but I can use my life to spread my tiny little bit. You know, I can continue to do that. And if it doesn't change anything, well, I tried. And that's about as much. And I can join together with other people I really like and really think are amazing. And we can together pitch in for the environment or pitch in for the refugee community or whatever it is we're doing together. And and at least we tried. At least we stood up and and said what we felt and tried to make it work. If the forces were greater than us in the end, there's nothing we can do about that. But we can try. And 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 many many plays are about people trying. They're not necessarily about success stories. Even the classics are about people fighting for what they believed and putting their money where their mouth is. You know, standing up for it. And I think that's the inspiration. Yeah. of those plays, not that necessarily, you know, they achieved in making the world a better place, but they they tried. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, and I think it's always important to remember that I don't necessarily think we're making linear progress. You know, I think the age of the Enlightenment was in some ways a much, much more interesting, much more progressive era, certainly than the era we're living in now, no question, you know, no mm-hmm. question. You know, we're now living in a world in which the idea of equal societies and socialism is, is a dirty word. You can't even talk about it. Um, yeah. That's That is a terrible... State of affairs to be in. But on the other hand, look, you know, you can now grow up and your sexuality can be whatever it is and you can find a life in many parts of the world where you can live your life with that sexuality and be allowed to and not be locked in prison for it. And, of course, there's persecution and oppression in other parts of the world. But, you know, we're not sending kids up chimneys to clean them anymore, (laughs) you know. I mean, there are, as I constantly say to my my very old mum who thinks, you know, everything's getting worse, I said, Mum, you just don't notice all the amazing things that have got better. So, you know, there's plenty of reasons to keep fighting.
0: I completely agree. As 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 someone who's who's who, who's worked with words my whole career and find them fascinating and the small changes, the 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 biggest botched line ever, being this is a small step for man, a giant leap for mankind. When it was meant to be a small step for a man, a giant leap for mankind. Um, right. And it makes me think of to. To think of trying to change the world is really intimidating and overwhelming. Again, at 18, it sounds, I'm going to do this. But as you grow up, you realise it's not. But to try and change a world is very achievable. Changing your own world, changing the world of your neighbour or a family member, that's very Mm. achievable. Changing the world of, you know, specific refugees or Mm. or whomever Mm. else it all Mm. becomes all the more achievable and i think that's where we need to at times just adjust that one take it from the to a just that one word to make it more achievable and and realistic as as individuals because again it's so easy to get i think it's the reason conspiracy theories have blown up is they allow us to submit to hopelessness there's yeah. all these powers that be, so there's nothing I can do. So I may Absolutely. as well just just forget about it and get on. It's like, well, no, you can make these small changes. You you can interact with that homeless person, or as as I mean, al- al- let's d- discuss some of your work in the area of refugees. Because I've done two different kind of a uh, refugee specials on here, and one was with an amazing woman uh, uh, called R- R- Ramel, who just had the most astounding story of from homelessness and really at the end of her 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 tether as such to finally being granted asylum status so that she could earn educate and within four years had a degree in it was something like biochemistry it was something just crazy and yeah prior to that she'd literally got to the point of homelessness on the streets in england because yeah. she couldn't get a bit of paper that said okay you you can uh, contribute and i think Again, it's the nuances. We both know that the media is so quick to talk of asylum seekers and how they're a drain on our society and illegal immigrants and how they're a drain on our society. And it's so easy to pick apart because you'll see articles that illegal immigrants get a certain amount of benefits and it's more than our grandparents. No, if they're illegal, they don't get any benefits. That's, <laughs> that's a nonsense. <laughs> Absolutely. The illegal part is there. And asylum yeah. seekers, again, what are they adding to society? Well, when you grant them asylum they can add to a society. When they're kept as asylum seekers, they aren't allowed to add to our society. They can't get jobs, That's they it. can't get education. So these small things that are just these warped myths are so easy to, to dispel, They are. but you need to get it out there. So yeah, yeah, what was it that drew you to that cause? Because you've worked with Amnesty International for years. You, I saw some wonderful posts about the closing of Napier Barracks, during this pandemic where asylum seekers have been kept in appalling conditions um yeah Mm, so yeah yeah. why has that been a cause for you over the years
1: well it started about 25 30 years ago when i did a play in which i had to play a woman who'd been um Imprisoned and tortured under Pinochet's regime, fascist regime in Chile, which destroyed almost a whole generation of young people who he just killed, tortured, you know, terrible, terrible fascist regime. And it was in power for years. So it was a play called Death and the Maiden, in which I had to play someone who had been previously um, imprisoned and tortured. And I thought, I just can't play this woman without help. I, I just don't have the right. I don't even I can't even imagine surviving you know, systematic rape. And I mean, I just, I don't have the right to play this woman. I don't know. And there will be lots of people out there who do know, and I owe it to them to get this right. So I thought I'm going to have to find people who've been through this. So I went through the wonderful Helen Bamber, who worked with torture victims from all over the world. Amazing woman. Um, She introduced me to lots of Chilean refugees who'd come to this country at that time in the 1970s from Chile and who'd survived detention and torture, who'd opposed Pinochet's regime and had to and if they survived torture, then they had to get out of the country. And they were still in, in, in England, still in London. And they were so generous, so amazing, talking to me all those years later about their experience of that and, and how they survived it and if they survived it and how they live with it now and the guilt. and the. So once I put the play on and, and the play was amazing, it, it really Anyway, it was it was a success and it went on for about a year. But after I finished doing it, I thought I'm not I can't leave this community. I can't just say, mm. Well, thanks, mate, you know, and, and and move on. Yeah. So I then went on working supporting Helen Bamber in her incredible work, which is now Freedom from Torture is now the organization and, and the Helen Bamber Foundation, which tries to support and, and give all kinds of therapies to, to people coming from this country from those similar regimes where they have been Tortured, and then that just, I just—I mean—and then when I started hearing these stories, and as you say, these extraordinary individuals coming to this country, having been imprisoned and punished for things for doing things which, in this country, they'd be heroes for. Yeah, you know, for being like whistleblowers, or yeah. or for standing up and writing about injustice, or you know, they'd be in this country we would say, well, good on you. And in their countries, they've been you know, normally political prisoners, or even just married to the wrong person. You know, who's You know, somebody who stood up against a government. Anyway, for whatever reason, they've had to leave their countries, very often leaving families and often children and escape for their lives, walk across countries, hand money over to smugglers. These unbelievable journeys getting here and then try and make a life here. And as you say, very often being on the streets. I mean, the stories are so astonishing. I know I would not myself survive these things. And not Mm. only have these people survived them but they're standing there with dignity and then you know, speaking in a language which is not their first or even perhaps their second language. Astounding human beings. So I'm just in awe of most people I meet in that community, even though many of them are dealing with a lot of damage and trauma. Yeah. So partly the work is to saying, I want to be in touch with these people because I just learn so much from them, but also because why would you not do your bit if you could? I mean, we if you look at the history of this country, you know so many people came to this country from other places and 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 what these people contribute once they're allowed to stay here, because they are dedicated, because they have so many skills, because they're so grateful to be given asylum or sanctuary, they really, really commit. And when you know one of the many refugee charities I work for is called Breaking Barriers, which finds decent proper work and jobs for 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 refugees, and once they are given the right to stay. And, you know, and the employers who very often big corporate employers like IKEA and banks and law firms and so on, mm. they, they, I've heard them speak. I've spoken to them saying, you know, these are incredible employees for us, just amazingly hardworking, dedicated, intelligent, compatible, because their desire to work well and be assimilated is so great. Um, mm. So, as you rightly said, you know, give people a chance and they will contribute a huge amount. And um, all societies now are formed. You know, we live internationally. So what is this thing of, you know, people can't come in and the the absurdity of asylum seekers not being able to work, which keeps them in this terrible poverty, sometimes literally in hunger. I was reading only this morning that they have yet again changed the system. They've taken these little cards away, which enable people to get five or eight pounds worth of food a week, that's all, wow. and then they've taken them away, so many people are now literally saying, I can't even buy any food, and um, why not let them work? We desperately need, after Brexit, people to do jobs that the Brits don't want to do. We desperately need more carers for the elderly. Very often the women are wanting to do caring or nursing work with a huge shortage in those industries, and we're stopping them from working. It just doesn't make any sense, does it, Pip? I mean, it's mad.
0: No, I I completely agree, and, and recently when people were tearing down... St- the statues of slavers and, and things like that, which was, I mean, I loved watching it, but, you know, people can have yeah. their own opinions. Um, yeah. People were arguing, we can't remove our history, but I think our teaching of history is one of our greatest f- f- failings in this country because we don't teach our true history clear enough, r- whether it be the horrific things we did in colonising countries or or in the slave trade. But, but equally simply, the fact that... N- None of us probably were born here. There's been so many different waves of variations of people who have come to this country b- and built the country that it's so ignorant to start saying, well, from now, though, for, from now, it should only be the British. It's like, well, OK, well, or from my granddad's yeah. generation, it should only be the British. It's like, no, that's not how this country or, or m- most of the world has ever been. There's That's how we get to societies that we that we have is through taking all sorts of different people in, coming together, learning from them, everyone, yeah, rising together. And it's just totally. such a weird um, ignorance now that these people claim to to love the flag and love British history. It's like you're so ignorant on what made Britain what it is.
1: I so agree. And the irony, the ultimate irony, that our Home Secretary, who is such a savage... policies towards asylum seekers and refugees is herself the product of of a more generous and compassionate, yeah. you know, her parents were refugees from Idi Amin's Uganda. Her yeah. own parents came here as Asian Ugandans, f- escaping Idi Amin's tyrannous regime. Yeah. So she she wouldn't even be where, you know, she wouldn't be here had she not been on the receiving end of a compassionate um, immigration policy that allowed her parents to come in and escape that brutal regime. Yeah. And yet she, how can it be? How does she? How does she join those dots? I just don't, I long to... I long to put her in a room in one of the barracks at the ref, you know, and and lock her in and say, you're not coming out until you answer me that question. (laughs) But, um, But I agree. And about history, you know, I so agree. And when people say, oh, you know, we're so fed up with people dissing and saying how, you know, how terrible Britain's history is. Well, you know, quite honestly, if you're taught history only from the point of view of kings and queens and leaders and governors, British history is pretty terrible. But if you start teaching history from the point of view of the ordinary people. Yeah then you'll find there's tons to be proud about. Because actually, all through the ages, ordinary people were doing amazing things. And if you, you know, back to can we make a difference? I mean, if you look back at the history of progress and the history of protest and the history of change for the better... Almost all those movements have come from people just standing up and saying enough is enough and yeah. creating a movement. And then eventually politicians catch up later and say, oh, we better date. We better do this. There's a lot of trouble going on. You know, a lot of people shouting about this. So let's we better legislate for it. But almost all change and progress has been pushed for by ordinary people. And I just wish that we were taught more about that history and not just about kings and queens and you know, whose heads got chopped off. Yeah. I just think... And if we did that, people would say, well, there's loads to be proud about you know, in our yeah, history. Um,
0: completely. So many individual stories. Yeah, yeah. And um, Well, well. speaking of personal history, you were, like myself, born and, uh, and raised in Essex, and Essex has very much had many different stereotypes over the years. Um, none that are familiar to the Essex I know. So what was, I guess, what was... Essex that you knew as a child and what drew you to study arts because again as much as I love where I'm from no one was t- was telling me growing up that music was an option or acting was an option or poetry was an option and all of these things that I've now had as my l- life for so long so, so what was your your Essex
1: oh no Pip no I'm an imposter because I was born in Essex you're absolutely right I was yeah. born in Kilverden Yep. Yeah. Um, which is not very far from Colchester. So absolutely born in Essex. But I was only there for about three months. And then because my dad was was in the army because, and he was based at an army camp near Colchester. And then he got posted to Germany. So we all trotted off to Germany for two and a half years. Then he went to Australia. Then we went to Malta. Then we went back to Germany. So actually I am, you're dead right. I was born um, from Essex and I'm perfectly proud to say I was, you know, born, but I wasn't really bred Essex because yeah. I uh, we we were trailing around after Dad all the time, like like you do in the army. So, but you know, similarly in the army, you certainly don't get access to any poetry, theatre, yeah. even cinema. You know, we got one movie a year would be sent out to our army base, and it would probably be something completely unsuitable for kids. That I would insist on going, and then my mum would drag me out, you know, <laughs> um, screaming. Um, so I didn't see or have any of that growing up. So. I didn't, we didn't even have telly, to be honest. So um, not until I got into my teens. But for me, it was a poem. It was a poem. See, for me, wow. acting is really not about exterior stuff at all. It isn't about watching, you know, wonderful movie stars or falling in love with, you know, Burt Reynolds or, you know, or, 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 or anything like that. It was. I read a poem when I was about nine or ten at school and um, it was a poem. I didn't know what it was. It now, now I look at it again. It's a love poem from one man to another. It's W. H. Auden, and um, it's a very beautiful, quite difficult poem. But I read it at school when they were trying to get kids to read something out at the speech day for parents or something like that. I don't know. And and there was sort of some Winnie the Pooh, and there was this, you know this sort of stuff. And then there, there was for some reason there was this poem, and I picked it up and read it, and thought, and my whole body had this like electric shock reading this poem. And I love the rhythms. I'm obsessed with the rhythms in language and they're like music to me. They're as powerful as music is, and the rhythms in music and the rhythms in language work wonders on us, but work on us in ways we don't necessarily understand and we don't have to understand. We can just let yeah. them do it. But it had this beautiful repetitive rhythm and I just like fell in love with it a bit like a kid hearing drums for the first time, you know. Yeah. I have to read this poem, you know, it's mine. And I remember the teacher saying, oh no, I don't think that's appropriate. And I was saying, yes, yes, yes. I really want to read it. And I was just filled with this sense of myself as a kind of conduit, just as someone who the poet, the poem would just pass through me from the writer to the audience, just pass through me. But I just wanted to be the thing it passed through. So I just wanted to get my heart and mind around these words and deliver them to, to a group of people hearing it. And, In a way, I love going back to that story because that is what acting is, actually. You know, you take a text written by a writer and then there's a bunch of people watching or listening and you're just the person through whom that story is happening. You can add to it on the way, you can interpret it, you can add your own personal history to it, but it's always good to remind yourself that that is all we are. We are conduits between the writer and the audience. And I like to remember that because it keeps it all in proportion. It stops us getting a bit, you know any delusions about how important we are. and But it also celebrates the fact that this is a community of communication. You know, there's a writer involved. There's normally visual designers involved. There's uh, there's actors. there's And then the audience, are a very important part of that, what, whether it's theatre, telly, podcasts, we're a community of people and the story's being jointly told. And even those just hearing it or watching it are part of that event. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the story of how I became an actor.
0: I love that. And I love... The 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 that early removal of of ego in being the conduit of writing t- to an audience, and it it kind of speaks a lot to to your career because one of the things I found f- fascinating is your m- m- your your free movement from stage to TV uh, uh, to film, particularly in a time when stage was quite s- separate from. And even TV and film were quite separate. You're either a film actor or a TV actor or a stage actor. How was that? And and was that always your your kind of plan to go, I want to go where there's a story I want to tell rather than I want to be on the stage or I want to be on the silver screen or whatever else? Was that always your outlook?
1: Yeah, I think you just put it really well. I want to go wherever there's a story that I want to tell is is a brilliant way of describing what's been my guide. I mean, I'd never had a plan The only plan I had was to have no plan. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So the only agent, I I, I left an agent very early on who I got at drama school. He was really, you know, grand, very important, big agency. I was dead lucky. But I left him about three years later because he said to me, I was 20, you know, I was 20 when I joined up with him. And he said to me, in my early 20s, he started saying, You know, I'm, I'm going to make you the next Peggy Ashcroft. You know, you're going to be a classical, you know, you're going to be the great classical actor of your generation by the age of 40. And I thought, What? Oh my God, get me out of here. You know, you can't be telling me what your grand plan for me is. I don't know. I yeah. don't know. I want to do all sorts of stuff. I don't know. I mean, I adore Shakespeare and I love the classics because I spent most of my 20s at the. RSC doing loads of classical theatre, but also doing all the new plays. You know, yeah. everybody forgets it. it was actually I did as many new plays as I did classics. But I, I just knew that I wanted to be free to go wherever the interesting work was happening, and so I've never. You know, people say, "What do you want to do next?" I never know how to answer. I, no, I don't want to play. You know, I don't. I can't give you a role that I want to play, but I am just so excited to keep moving in directions mainly that I haven't been in before I think you have to keep moving to the side you know careers tend to be described in terms of trajectories forward or upward or whatever but I think moving to the side is a really important direction because because then you, you find yourself in situations, like with Sarah Pascoe's wonderful series, you yeah. think, God, I don't know how to do this. I just, I'm shitting myself. I don't know how to do this. And that's a really good feeling. Because you know, yeah. when you don't know how to do something, you're in the right place. I think knowing how to do something is a very dangerous, dangerous state to yeah. be in, because you just get boring, you know, and you go on producing the same work. And actors can get so boring when they get older. You know. And my terror is that. That's yeah. my fear that I'll just get sort of predictable, and so I like moving across class, across you know, as wide, as playing as wide a range of people as I can, and across a wide, as wide a range as, as possible in terms of the form.
0: I I, I, I love hearing that. It's so inspiring to hear because I've I I only moved into acting about six years ago now from from music and poetry and coming in. I thought right there's loads of things I want to do I'd love to be in Peaky Blinders or a Marvel film or all these different things and what I yeah. learned really quickly was the dream role is a role I've never even heard of yet and yeah. I had that in so, so many different things rather than here's what here's what I want to do something would come about and I'd read yeah. this script and go oh my god this is amazing like this this wouldn't if if I'd set out with a plan here's what I want to do this TV show yeah. this film yeah. this that I would have missed all this amazing stuff that I just had never heard of.
1: So how did you make the move into acting? Because, I mean, you... I I, I hadn't seen any of your acting work until the Sarah Pascoe show. And I can say this, I can embarrass you on your own podcast, but honestly, what you did was so exquisite. It was so exquisite. It was so... It was so funny... But it was also really touching because it was so real. Because you just inhabited that guy with a penis yeah. to look like a mouse. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just, and it, but you took it as seriously as though you were playing Hamlet. You know, and that is the way. That's what to do. You have to Completely. take everything. That was absolutely believe it, and 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 then it's incredibly funny or incredibly moving. But it won't be funny if you don't believe it. And I just the beauty of what you did yeah. with that role, and I don't know where Sarah had seen you, or, but how did you make the transition
0: so into... F- f- for me, it was a, a really weird one. I'd been doing mu- music for years and I'd been lucky to make friends with Riz Ahmed and Simon Pegg and a few other people like that who'd become fans of my music and we'd become friends. And they were constantly saying, because all I talk about is film and TV and and, and like, I'm, I've, I've been obsessed my whole life. But I think because I grew up in Essex and the, 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 then go to any kind of drama school and I've got a stutter I always thought right I'm not going to be able to do that and it was people like that who were constantly saying so so when you're going to move into acting because all my music videos would be very dramatic and I'd write them and direct them and all this kind of thing and then yeah I just kind of decided at one point I'm happy with where I've got to in music I'll take some time off and try, try and get into acting and again through reading loads of books and studying only went to a few different drama courses but again there was the, the that fear from speaking to other actors well acting classes are great if you've got a good teacher
1: yeah
0: and if you've not then they might really do you really s- some oh. damage and it was a weird yeah. one because the first few acting gigs i got the feedback i got was the reason i got them was because there was a rawness so i was concerned that if i then just go and do a dr- a a drama school i'll get rid of what is the appeal at the moment but then equally i'm never one that's arrogant enough to to rest on my laurels it's like i want to improve i want to get better so yeah i had a few different specific classes recommended and then it's just been loads of of learning on the job i mean as you would have uh, have possibly noticed on on out of her mind every set i'm on i'll be trying to talk to talk to the people who've been doing it for years and asking questions and even if i'm wrapped i'll often ask if i can just stay and watch because if i get to watch what you guys are doing and what other people are doing Uh, it's it's all it's a classroom that, that i i never had and in many ways because at the moment i'm wanting to focus on tv and film it's also a classroom that you can't get in a classroom because you can only learn so much that mm. when there's actually cameras there and time restriction and people, so, so much of what I've already experienced, so much of what you will learn in a classroom, it's out the window because yeah. you've got to just g- get on with this and get this done. Yeah. So yeah, so, yeah totally. that was kind of...
1: That's so interesting. The lure I, draw, I totally yeah. agree with you. When I yeah. look back, I think I often say this, you know. I mean, I did go to drum school and I am a big believer in training. And I think. And I, think, uh, I, I think
0: mean, t- to touch upon the era that you were at Rada, it was that kind of time of Jonathan Price and Alan Rickman and Fiona Shaw and Imelda Staunton and Kenneth Branner and all of these. So, yeah, I'd imagine you. You, you, you learned quite a bit in in, in, well, in those rooms, I mean, in those moments.
1: The thing is, Pip, I was 18 when I went and I was just all over the place. Yeah. I didn't know who, I hadn't got a clue who I was. I was just like, you know, I had worked for a year in London by that time, but, you know, I was probably quite confident in my brain, you know, but I had so little experience of life and I was, a, you know, I was a complete sort of muddle and a mess and... I couldn't have started acting. I had to start practicing behind closed doors like you do at drama school and um it wasn't a drama rada rada in those days was you know the whole idea of it being sort of voice beautiful that's absolutely not true most of the kids were working class kids from the north who came into my year nobody was saying you've got to talk posh they were all saying you've got to learn to be versatile Uh but i would still say that now i'd say yeah if you don't want to just endlessly play yourself all the time which is so boring then of course you've got to learn to speak in different voices that's the job description our job description is people we dress up and we pretend to be other people. We don't dress up and pretend to be ourselves, yeah. right? So <laughs> yeah. I would defend to the death, you know, our right to play other people. But um, no, so I mean, it was good for me to have that practice. And I think that training can help you be versatile. Yeah, And I don't think that training takes away the rawness of your talent, if it is uh, the right kind of training. But yeah. I totally agree that there are some, there is some bad teaching out there. There are some people I think running drama courses in schools that are just taking money off kids and and sending them in the wrong directions. But there is also some very wonderful training out there and some amazing teachers. And I owe a lot. But I think I probably learnt more than anything from standing in the wings and yeah. just watching really amazing actors on stage night after night after night as a little, you know, as an eighteen-year-old, twenty-year-old, or whatever. Standing as a spear carrier, holding my spear at the back of the stage, just watching incredible actors working night after night. Or in, as you say, in television studios, just watching. It,
0: it, is there anyone that comes to mind from those those, those t- times on stage? Because stage is something that, <laughs> if you're not in the theatre world, I think it can get so overlooked. There's so many icons that, that the general public yeah. won't know, know of, but those in that world will you know revere hugely so is is there any any moments or people that come to mind in that respect
1: oh I mean I was 20 years old I went up to Stratford to join the Royal Shakespeare Company in that company was Glenda Jackson, Alan Rickman, Zoe Wanamaker, Jane Lapeter, Ian Charlson wonderful Ian who died of AIDS um Ruby Wax, David Suchet wow. I mean just just to just yeah. just for starters right and I mean, if if I had to pick one person I learned from, I'd probably say the amazing David Suchet, who maybe people know from playing, you know, the definitive Poirot, right, Hercule Poirot, in Poirot for decades. I think it's finished now. But David started as a theatre actor and the very first show I was asked to be a spear carrier in was The Tempest. And he was playing Caliban, you know, the creature on the island, who's sort of half man, half beast and the rest of it. It was not a good production. It was a laughably bad production, actually. It (laughs) It never made it beyond Stratford. And we used to take the piss out of it before it even opened to the press. But David played Caliban as this creature. And I used to stand in the wings every night and watch him and think, I mean, he was so brilliant. It was like. He was playing it really like some indigenous person just longing for his own freedom. You know, I don't know if people know the play, but even if they don't, it doesn't really matter. It was a terrible production, but he was brilliant in it. And he gave that character such dignity. Um, Shakespeare doesn't always give him dignity, although he gives him the most beautiful poetic speech in the whole play, which is an amazing thing for him to have done. Um, He doesn't give it to the heroes and the heroines. He gives it to this half man, half beast creature who talks about the exquisite beauty of the island where he lives and the sounds and the smells of the island and it's poetry. And you think, God, Shakespeare, bloody hell, you know, he was amazing because he gives this to this wild beast, you know? And so he's sort of saying, listen, people, nothing is what you think it is. Nobody's who you think now. Don't dismiss this character. He has this incredible soul, you know? And David, David went out every night and gave such an exquisite performance. And I, the huge lesson I learned from that is no matter what's going on around you, even if the show is really bad, <laughs> even if the production isn 't what you need it to be or want it to be, yeah. there is no excuse not to do your best and most passionate work and work with your fellow actors to make it as good as possible it 's quite a mundane lesson it 's no, not it's a very glamorous great, lesson, but no. it 's been the most valuable lesson yeah. Just do them you can carve some really beautiful truths and you can this amazing performance even though the shit going on all around, you know. And usually there isn't shit going on all around, but it was it was just astonishing what he achieved. And, of course, and he also taught me he could be huge. You know, sometimes his reactions, David's on stage, were huge. I mean, rage or passion. But as long as it's felt, as long as it's rooted in reality, you can be as big as you like. Okay. And that's true on screen, you know. i, I The only thing I'm sad about is lots of kids now on screen think that, you know, the reality, the real thing to do is sort of mutter, 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 yeah. mutter. And you think... No, in life we're not right. That that's not what life's like. Life's like people trying to communicate with each other, and you know, and you can really be big on screen, but as long as it's real, it does. It's always going to be okay.
0: Oh, well, I mean, speaking of of, of interaction and that, that that kind of overlapping nature, how was it to work on on play with Alan Rickman and 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 Kristen Scott Thomas and and Ray Don? It's a, a Samuel Beckett piece, and just the speed of delivery and interaction in that is just astounding and mind-boggling. And I find it really interesting because I think Shakespeare has room for over-interpretation. Again, you can get really bad Shakespeare plays because it can be overdone. Something like play, it feels like it takes that away from you because so much of it is getting the, the delivery and the speed of delivery and the intricacy of the delivery that it wouldn't allow you too much over-interpretation on the character or on the role, and yeah. that must be a really good thing in general. Like like going forward, like, as you said, l- lessons you, you've learned in different moments, that was one where I watched and thought, wow, yeah, you've had to remove th- the self completely there. You can't do too much analysis no. of your performance because you just have no. to do the performance.
1: Exactly. Well, I mean, I think what you're saying is, you know, with Beckett, it's just so much about the words, the the text. There's so much text and it's so fast, so crazily has to be delivered so fast that there isn't any time to sort of you're you're right. And I think um, that's a very extreme case, because, as you say, with that particular piece, the characters are speaking like as though they're speeded up. Yeah. And you have to do it like that. And I remember being a bit outraged because I learned it. Right. And I can't remember what Kristen Scott Thomas did, but um, Alan. Didn't learn it, Rickman. He read it and he had it on, you know, what do you call it, cue. Yeah. And we got to the studio and I had spent... I tortured myself trying to learn this stuff, you know. And I was also pregnant, which I wasn't allowed to tell anybody because wow. I was quite early in the pregnancy and I was feeling very sick, like you do early on often in pregnancy. So I was nauseous. And we had to sit in these pots... And they have been sort of glued, made out of sort of, you know, I don't know, some sort of papier mache and glue. And the smell of glue, hot glue, melting with the heat of our bodies in these pots for hours on end in the studio was making me really, really sick. It was a bit of a nightmare. But anyway... But then Alan and I thought, Alan, that's so lazy that you haven't learnt it, they're just gonna read it off autocue. And anyway, it won't sound good if you're reading off autocue because you've got to inhabit it and you know and actually I'm telling this story because when I watch the film now I think actually Alan is so good in it. Yeah. <laughs> he was so yeah, he, I was so wrong. You know, he he really, he really makes it work. But I mean the thing about Samuel Beckett is I've I've since done um Not I, which is that monologue where she just talks for 18 minutes yeah. very, very fast and she tells the same story about herself and she loops around and every time she tells it again, she tells it slightly differently and so you can go bonkers and you have to do it as fast as that. Yeah. And then I've also done Happy Days where, you know, the character's stuck up to her neck in the sand and you've got two hours on your own on stage um, talking again fast. It, it, it's, it's a wonderful exercise in just handing yourself over to the text. The te- he's such a genius. I think Beckett is such a freaking genius that actually it's a wonderful exercise in humility because you do have to interpret you know these characters but really the rhythms of the language and the nature of the language and the imagery in them and 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 just the sound and the music of them does take you to where you need to be you've just got to surrender surrender to the language in a way and it will do most of the work for you
0: it's it's i again i find all of it fascinating um you mentioned Andrew Scott earlier and I heard him on a podcast and it really helped me with a gig I had coming up and it, it's, it, it's come to mind because you mentioned that in play you'd, you'd killed yourself learning all of this and taking it so seriously. And then Alan kind of turned up and was like, <laughs> all right, let's get on. With it. But, um, yeah, Andrew, Andrew spoke about, and again, it's a, it's an appropriate w- word as well. He spoke about the fact that at the end of the day, we're, it's called a play for a reason, Like we're meant to go up there and enjoy it. We're meant to be playing and you can get so over, over grandiose or over serious about how important this is. Obviously do your prep and do your work. And it's something that I've taken from that now, because I am really, I'm studious on these things. And also, I mean, having a a stutter, it will mean that when I'm learning lines, I want to really learn it and know where I'm breathing and where I'm not breathing to, because I, Obviously, I can make my characters not have a, st- a, st- st- a stutter. It's a strange thing. I, I don't yeah. want to assume that every character I'm casting has to have a stutter. So I've yeah. only had one character that on screen has had a stutter. But so, so things like that, I'll naturally do a lot of prep. But I'll now, after hearing Andrew Scott say that, I'll now have a cut-off point where I'm like, right, that that's it. Yeah. The prep is done now. Now we're going to go in and enjoy working with... On this amazing set and with these amazing people, rather than being that so focused on, here's my exact performance because oh, it stops God. any any fluidity. It's meant to be, and again, the out of her mind is a perfect example that I had no idea what you guys were going to do or what Sarah was going to do. So if I'd got too obsessed with, here's how my role is delivered, then you're screwed. So yeah, it was realizing totally. that you are meant to go and enjoy it. It's meant to be fun. It's meant to be a play. In is, it's. it's oh, I, saw,
1: I mean, I just couldn't. I couldn't agree with you more. I just think, you know, I, I mean, the, uh, Andrew, and Andrew is glorious to be on stage with. Or, I mean, I haven't done a um, screen work yeah. with him, but I have been on stage with him. Played his mum Gertrude in Hamlet for a long, long time. And, um, I mean, the great joy of Andrew on the stage is that you go out on stage, and although you've done the same, you know, you're doing it eight times a week, same play, yeah. Hamlet, and yet you go out on stage, and every single time it's that what what we're going to do with this tonight and and of course you've got a rough structure but it doesn't matter if you don't stick to it you know where the important things in the scene are you've got to serve the scene but you're going to do that but within that then new things can happen and you know you go in new directions every night and because you're doing it together and this is my absolute sort of mantra and I would say to any young actor or any aspiring actor exactly what you said just now you go out there and you of course, you've prepped to some extent and you've learned it and you've, you know, you know who you're playing. But when you, when you get in front of the camera or you get out on stage, you create everything with the other actors. It's not about you and what you're bringing. It's about all of you and what you create together. And the sexy, exciting, fascinating, alluring thing that you're going to offer an audience is not what I'm doing or what you're doing, but what we do between us. What we yeah. make happen between us—that's the electric field between us—is where the story's told, is where the interest is. That's where it's sexy and interesting and alive and funny and or sad. So you've got to stay open to your fellow actors, and then you don't. There's always an element of not knowing where it's going to go, and that's what I love most. And an- Andrew's absolutely brilliant at that. I mean, he is, he is so playful. Yeah. Even on—even if it's serious stuff, you can be playful doing a tragedy. It's still playful. And he has this amazing capacity just to make something sound as though it's never been said before and never passed through his brain before. I mean, he amazing. he new mints old texts, like it's just new thought coming through his brain. He has an astonishing gift yeah. um, like that. I think it's it's so important not to come with a fully... Decided on performance and deliver it like a sort of shipment, like an Amazon delivery. Here yeah, it is, all yeah. boxed up, ready to go. You know, you think, no, no. Here I am. Leave. Here's
0: my part. Slot that in there. Here's, here's, yeah, no, exactly. No, no. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: I love that. Well, I mean, we've been talking for an hour and we've barely mentioned the global pandemic that's been on for the last year, which is quite an achievement in any <laughs> conversation these days. <laughs> um, and the only uh, reason I mention it now is generally when I wrap things up, I ask, what's ahead? And Always the hardest question for actors because it's either we don't know or we're not allowed to talk about it. But I think it's an interesting one in this last year because I think it's given... Acting is also a career that doesn't really acknowledge the idea of holidays or lives or anything outside of it. And I think everyone has had a period where, whilst there has been work and things like that, it's there's at least been some period of reflection. So mm. are you coming out the, at the other end of this... With any changes in your outlook of what you want to do next, or where you want to go, or how you want to approach things, or are you still kind of again? You've said early on that the outlook has always been just I don't know yet. (laughs) You know, I I want to see what's (laughs) next. Yes,
1: great question. Like a lot of actors, well, I had been going to do the Doctor in the West End, and I was going to New York with it, so it was a very sad year of work to lose. So I was, you know, everybody had huge losses last year. I'm 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 no worse than anybody else, but it was however it was lost and that was all there was to it my um beloved partner husband Hugh had a health issue which meant we had to get out of London his doctors said you know at the beginning of the pandemic if, if you can get out so we did get out and so we spent we were very lucky that we spent it out of town and we did a lot outside and dug a vegetable patch and grew our own vegetables and all that stuff I always sort of thought oh that'd be lovely to do sometime but I'm not ready for it now but suddenly we were given this and the kids were all in there. Universities and that, you know. So, we live this rural life for the first time in ages, and I suppose you know I'm a very speedy person. I spend my life running around managing kids, managing work, trying to get do my bit on sort of you know various wonderful charities that I love to support and things like that. So I do. I'm quite speedy and I'm quite busy, and I do a lot of running around. And I think for me to stop, it would take you know the family joke. They said, "Mom, it takes a global pandemic, you know, for you to actually." <laughs> stop and sit down and look at the sky. Um but I found after a while I really loved it. I was very scared, of course, for my profession, the industry. It was terrible to see theatres closing. It was terrible mm. to see weeds growing around stage doors and you know, and no knowing whether theatre would be able to come back and then thinking about the consequence of that and being and trying to answer your question, I think up to the pandemic I'd begun to think maybe I'll give up acting. I've done a lot of acting. I've played everything in the world there was to play. <laughs> in terms of human emotions, maybe I'll do something else. You know, i have only got one life? Why do the same thing? I, I, well, take it away from me. And I began to be screaming for it, you know. So I, as yeah. after about four months of not acting, I thought, oh, my God, I miss it. I miss it. And so by not being able to do it for the first time ever... I discovered what it was for me, what it meant to me to do it. And I had taken that for granted. And when I, you know, like so often you don't understand the value of something until it's taken from you, yeah. including a person. Um Often, so often, how often when someone dies and we realize what this person was and who they were and you think, oh God, why didn't I value that, you know? And I began to realize why I need to act. And I never realized it before because I'd never stopped doing it. And I can't bear, you know, I realized I need to be other people. I just need to dress up and be other people and tell other people's stories and inhabit their lives. I just don't want to be inside just my own skin and my own life all the time. And I don't know why that is, but it was definitely true. So I built myself a sound studio. I'm not a great techie expert, but I did build this crazy studio out of mattresses and duvets and bedding and um, futons and, and then um, bought the equipment. And so I was able to earn a living reading lots and lots and lots of audio books um, some great, great books. So that was a joy and managed to keep going financially because we didn't get any sort of government support. So that was good. But it, I think it was mainly beginning to see the world in a, from a quieter perspective. And I think lots of people have said this. And taking time to really look, watching a whole season develop and change and then move into another season, watching a bud appear on a, on a branch And then get slightly bigger and slightly bigger, and then begin to open, and then open, and then bloom, and then die, and then turn into a fruit. I mean, I know this is corny. I've never done that in my whole life. And just to take the time to see things, the detail of things in the world, in nature, amazing stuff. I used to dream of, but never believed I would have the patience or the time for. So, it was a kind of a gift. And then understanding and appreciating my profession and the work we do, and. And in all the talk about you know key workers and always realizing you know we're not key workers, the world really needs nurses and doctors and teachers and people who drive trucks and deliver food and work supermarkets and stock shelves and those are the key workers there's no question but what you know but also realizing that people turned to drama in their in their sadness in their loneliness in their isolation in their anxiety in in the pandemic, they did watch stuff they mm. wanted to see stories you know the Audiobook sales went mad, Netflix, Amazon, you know, we all know that that, that stuff sold yeah. massively. So it was a wonderful confirmation also. Although the world was saying we don't need you, your industry's you know, <laughs> your industry's dead. But at the same time the proof was that people were turning yeah. to drama and to, to, to human stories for their consolation, their diversion, their comfort, their you know, to create a sense of human community. And then finally I started painting, which I never done before I used to draw a lot but and then I just started painting and I've become obsessed with painting so that's been like you know at my age you don't tend to think you're going to start doing anything you've not done before or get to be any good at anything and I'm not saying I am good at it but it's just wonderful to think oh I had no idea I could do this and I I can do it I mean I'm not making any claims but I can do it and that's quite unusual you know when you get to my age so um
0: yeah I think I learned loads I love that Well (laughs) Thank you very much for taking the time. It's absolutely flown by and it's been a joy.
1: Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's just
0: lovely talking to you. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, yeah. You've been listening to
1: Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces.
0: There we go. I told you she was a good egg. I I loved that. I loved that whole conversation. I loved everything that she said. I'm just a big fan and I'm so pleased to, you know, be, be able to call her a colleague or even as bold as to say a friend. So, yeah, it's wicked. I'll be back next week. I've got Amanda Abington on next week. It's another great chat with an actor that I'm just a huge fan of. So, yeah, exciting times at the moment, guys. As ever, speechdeveloperrecords.com or patreon.com forward slash pip to support the podcast. I'll see you next week. Stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.